So if you haven't already, turn to Matthew 22. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. Uh, Thanks, Frank, for reading that and worship team for uh, preparing our hearts and getting us ready. Um, I want to start off with just kind of just get us a a picture of just something to kind of help us understand what's going on here. And so I want you to imagine the toughest teacher or professor you ever had in school. You know, that one that most of the time you're just trying to keep up with the notes and you have to have a fellow classmate translate what was just said. You know, it could be something uh, intense like uh, Newtonian physics or it could be an ancient language or it could be writing, it could be math. But that, that, that teacher that is so hard to understand, so difficult, especially when you get those college professors at the higher level, they're like, Your job is to keep up with me. It's not my job to make it easy for you. We can kind of imagine that, whether we've seen it in real life or if we've seen it in a movie. Now, let's take that professor and move him to his house now. He goes home, and he's training his child up. What does that look like? My guess is, unless he's a truly a monster, my guess is, is when he goes home and he's training his child, he explains things Simply, he explains deep things in a way that his child would understand. Maybe even having the child sitting on his lap as he explains something in simple language so that the child can track, so the child can follow. Well, why does this man do that? Well, this man does it because he loves his child. This man does it because he wants his child to hear the message and the truth. So today... Our opening verse, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So understand this, just to start, that the God of the universe has condescended to come down, sit us down on his knee, and explain what's going on in a simple picture called a parable. Parable means to put alongside something else. So you take something difficult, you lay it out, and you put something simpler alongside it so that you can understand the more difficult thing. And this is Christ's heart for us, to understand difficult things. Why? Because he loves us. So don't miss that. This parable is interesting, to say the least, following after a couple other interesting parables. But when we read this, the first message we should get is God loves us and wants us to understand what he's doing. This is our third parable we've looked at in two weeks. Last week we did the two sons. You remember the the one son says, I'll do it, Dad, and then doesn't. The other son says, I won't do it, and then does. Then we got the parable of the vineyard workers who begin killing all of the servants from the vineyard owner, including the son of the vineyard owner, uh, the master of the vineyard. And then today we get the wedding feast the third parable of this group. Probably an idea of of what this is about is God's lavish blessing on us. He wants to lavish something on us, but for some reason, people reject the king, and they do this out of indifference or hostility or presumption. So today, we're going to look at these guests the ones that were invited, the ones who weren't invited, and we're going to try to understand what is the big deal here. So the first group we're going to look at is the invited guests. 
the invited guests. Look at verse 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus again saying, I'm teaching you what it's going to be like, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So the first thing I want us to see is there are three invitations in this passage. The first two are right here in verse 3. The first one is it says, who were invited, meaning they had been sent a written invitation or they had been sent a herald to their house to say, hey, we're doing this wedding feast in a few weeks. Make sure you come. So that's invite one. The second invite is the beginning of verse three. He sent his servants to call them. They're saying, it's time, come on. And then later in verse four, we see the third invite. So what is this wedding feast? Is this like the rehearsal dinner at weddings nowadays? Actually, it's a lot more. Uh, this would be a full week-long feast. And especially if it's the king's son, the king's son is going to get the most elaborate. So whatever you can imagine and more is what this is. The food was prepared mo- weeks in advance. Invitations would have gone out maybe even a year in advance. Rooms were decorated. Lodging was reserved. Plans were made. And it was all right there. I think it's important that we notice that our salvation, because of what Jesus did on the cross, is compared to this feast. For them at this time, this would have been saying, imagine the richest king or sultan or you know, whatever, Silicon Valley bigwig, what would a humongous feast be like? And that's what they're to imagine here. And our gospel, our salvation is compared to that feast. We are supposed to imagine it and go, wow, that sounds epic. And the cool thing about it is the feast goes on forever and ever. Verse 4, again, he, the king, sent out other servants. Maybe the first servants were rude. Maybe they just got them on a bad day, you know. They, they, They were out in the back and they didn't hear the knock on the door. So he sends a second set of servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Now, I love this. The king, in his forbearance and patience, is saying, okay, maybe it's my bad. I'm going I'm to I'm get you a third try. Let's get you in here. Ironically, he doesn't even just say, hey, remember that wedding I told you about? Come on. He describes it to them. Think about that. The dinner is ready. I have sacrificed the animals. It's ready to go. Do you smell that? That's the barbecue. That's the steak. We're not that close to lunch yet, so you guys can handle me talking about food, right? Okay? The cake is there. The chocolate fountain. The fondue fountain. It's all ready. Come. Come. He describes it to them. It's a feast of the fat things. These are the things that God always puts out there for Israel to say, this is what this is like. This is the best of the best. One author writes that this gospel is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, home to the outcast, and a loving friend to the lost. See, this this parable, again, to lay beside is to say, I'm going to describe the best feast possible. And you need to understand, that's a small explanation of how vast the good news is, our gospel that we celebrate. 
God offers peace to sinful men and women. This is the love that he puts on us. Modern day, you know, we're sitting back and we're going, this is an expensive meal, you know, uh, my son's getting married, hey, we're going uh, to do $75 a head, wow, that's a lot of money, but I need, to, I need you to RSVP, so I've sent you an invite, you haven't responded, I've sent you a second invite, you haven't responded, so I call you up and I say, hey, I need to know, this is an expensive feast, are you coming? And either you ghost me and you don't respond, or you say, I have, I have other things to do. i got to like, wash my hair. got to organize my sock drawer. You know, I, I've been meaning to clip my fingernails. i got to just sit back and do something else. The response is not good. Look at the first response, and it is indifference. In one of the translations, it says, they, they held it lightly, or they made light of it. Our translation says they paid no attention. They're truly indifferent. And went off, one to his farm and another to his business. So we need to understand before we get into their indifference that this is not an optional event, right? So like if our governor calls us up and says, I'm inviting you to a feast, many of us are like, yeah, no thanks, pass. Maybe if the president invites you up, some of us are going to have opinions that are going to say, no, pass. But the way it works with a king in this day is this is not a king saying, can you do this? He's saying, no, you're doing this. You are coming. He's saying what your future is going to be because the king is in charge of you. You can't say to the king, oh, we have a busy weekend, you know, we got hoops Friday night, we got basketball on Saturday, we got a, a youth thing here, and I got to, you know, we can't, you can't be busy on this day. It doesn't work that way. We have to remember that, that this is an affront to the king. When the king says, come, when you say, I won't do it, you are acting in rebellion. Now, we in America, we really like rebelling against monarchs. We, we made a habit of it, right? However, in the rest of the world, you don't rebel against your monarch. You don't say no to the king. This is a draft is what this is. You don't get a choice. He says, you are coming to my feast, so this first one, this indifference, this refusal is, is acknowledging that the king has no rule over you. So now that starts to change it. Like, you know, if, if the government tells me to do something, I'm going to probably eh, maybe, maybe not do it, which that's an issue of a different story. But here, you're not allowed to do that. You have to respond. And these people don't respond at all. Now notice, they're not off sinning. It's like, sorry, I'm too busy over here murdering people to, in order to come to your feast. They're doing good things. They're taking care of their farm. They're taking care of their business. Indirectly taking care of their families. Caring for your kids. Keeping up on your house. These are all good things. As a matter of fact, if we go through the Bible, we can find lots of places where it says, make sure you're taking care of those who are underneath you. Make sure you're providing. But... When these things become elevated to higher than they're supposed to be, as in higher than God, they become an idol. And God's all about destroying idols. Often our work can become an idol, where we say it's the most important thing over everything else. But the thing is we need to understand, as we are sitting here in a church building on a Sunday morning, is that the indifference thing is not just those outside the building. It's us right here. 
Because we look at it and we say, oh yeah, you know, bad sins are terrible and they're, they're destroying people. But there is an, a sin that is insidious and it's in us right now. And that is an indifference to the fact that God runs your life. God is your king. I found this quote and it's a little long, but I, I need to read it. There are thousands of hearers of the gospel who derive no benefit from it whatsoever. Every Sunday after Sunday, year after year, they do not believe it and they do not save their souls. They have no special need of the good news. They see no beauty in it. They don't hate it. They don't oppose it. They don't scoff at it. But they don't ever receive it into their hearts either. They like other things far better. Their money, their land, their business, their vacations are far more interesting subjects than their souls. It's a dreadful state of mind to be, to be in, but awfully common in our day. Let us search our hearts and take heed that it's not our own. And listen to this one. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kills its tens of thousands. Multitudes will find themselves in hell, not because they broke the Ten Commandments, but because they were indifferent towards God's gospel. Christ died on the cross, but they neglect to think of him. Let's not have that be who we are. When we think about what Jesus did on the cross, it's not for those out there, it's for us in here to not be indifferent to the fact that your soul is on the line when you believe or don't believe the gospel. So that's our first group. The second group is the hostile. The second response is hostility. Verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, these are the people that didn't pay any attention, treated them shamefully and killed them. So now this brings us back to where we were in last week's parable with the vineyard, where there was a lot of death and destruction. This parable is showing us that they can see where their hearts are at. These people who have nothing to do with God, they're actually hostile. Maybe they're covering it up, but this group is openly hostile. It reminds me of the prophets. This, this parable has so many layers. It can be a future parable, as in it's dealing with the future of the church after Jesus. It can also go backwards and deal with the time before Jesus came. And I think there's a good picture here of the prophets. When the prophets came and they're saying, hey, repent, People weren't like, high five, yes, let's go. No, they were like, you need to stop talking about that or we're going to kill you. The prophets were constantly persecuted, mistreated, and killed by the people of Israel. The issue being rejected here is the son of the king. God had invited these religious leaders in. They were the ones that knew the Bible the best, and they're the ones that pushed back the hardest. So it makes sense when we read John 1.11. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Those who knew him the best were the ones that pushed away the hardest. Now, verse 7, the king was angry. Now, right there, the king we know is God, and so we're going to have to deal with God as an angry God here in a moment. The king sends his troops and destroys the murderers and burned their city. This word angry, there's no way getting out of this word. Right? There's no like Greek word that I can say, oh, he was perturbed or he was put out. He was a little, you know, he was a little upset. No, this word actually is worse. It means enraged to bright red face. It's furious. It is an anger where veins are popping out that you've never seen in your forehead. 
This is the response that the king has. Now, we want to, dis- we want to distance this when it comes to God. But at the same time, we also want this, don't we? When we think about Christians around the world who've been butchered this year for simply being a Christian, not standing on a street corner and yelling out things, but just simply that they have a Bible in their house. And the people around them hate that and can't stand that because they serve the one, the devil, who hates the God's word, hates God. Do we want a God that goes, oh, darn, shoot. Or do we want a God that goes, I'm enraged at you. I am furious about what you're doing to my children. See, that's the kind of God we want, and that's the God we have. And in God's anger, he does strike people down when they hurt his children. But for certain, he pours out his wrath on them when they die. The good news is, is no matter what they've done in the past, if they're in Christ, that wrath goes on Christ or it goes on them. Isaiah 5, which earlier the two other parables both touched on Isaiah 5. And Isaiah 5, 24, the tongue, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness. Their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger was not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. See, Israel is told, if you don't repent, God's anger is going to come out on you. And so they persecute Isaiah, and they say, no, Isaiah, you're wrong. Our God's a nice guy. He doesn't care what we do. We're a part of Israel. We can do what we want. We're a part of the church. We can do what we want. I prayed a prayer 25 years ago. I can do what I want. See, the comparison is there, and understand God's anger goes against those who are his enemies. And Israel at this point is doing the work of the devil. They are his enemies. See, our world doesn't want an angry God. Now, not to knock on grandpas, but our world wants a grandfather, right? Because grandfathers, it's your job to spoil your grandkids, right? Okay, if they get really out of line, you might say, hey, mom or dad, discipline this one. But for the most part, grandparents, it's your job to just be the fun one, right? We don't want, our world doesn't want a father God. Our world world does not want a God who disciplines for our good. So this is meant to land on us. And and this is kind of crazy. Can we stop for a second, look at verse seven? The king was angry, so he sends troops in and destroys the murderers, okay, and then destroys their city. So let's get this. The people that are invited to the king's feast are usually the high muckety-mucks. They're the, they're the ones at the top of the economic food chain. So this would have been members of the Sanhedrin, elders, and very wealthy individuals. So they don't come to his feast, and when he sends servants, they kill him. So what does the king do? He gets his armies together, he goes in there and says, kill the murderers, and while you're at it, destroy the whole city. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction, or is it? The governor calling you to a feast, and you you don't take them, and then you, you kill the servants, and the governor calls out the National Guard to wipe out your city, not just your house, not just you. 
This is a really interesting, crazy response. It's meant to shock us. See, rejecting of the invitations is not simply rude. It's sinful. Whether you're indifferent or you're hostile, you are rebelling against the king. You're saying, you have no say over me. You are not in charge of me. I'm in charge of myself. See, the people that are destroyed are not neutral. They're not victims. They're not innocent. They were unwilling. They were indifferent. They were opposed to God. See, the picture that's being painted here is that opposing God, whether it be over the top or whether it just simply be, I'm too busy and I don't want anything to do with you, is rebellion, is the worst kind of rebellion. Because the gospel goes to everybody, but not everybody responds to it. The God of the universe is throwing a party for his son. Now, we talked earlier about the $75 a head feast for a, a wedding. What's the cost of the feast for this feast? $100 a head? $1,000 a head? Let me put it to you this way. It's infinite, infinite dollars ahead because how does one get to this feast? They get there by the death of the son that the feast is for. So you catch this, that Jesus' death on the cross is what purchases our ability to go to this feast. And so God is saying, I sacrifice the most infinitely valuable thing in the universe, the most valuable being in the universe, my son who I have loved for all of eternity. I sacrificed him for you, and when you go, nah, Nah, you know, I'm not really into feasts. Uh, You can just, I I don't care that you paid for my spot. It's worthless to me. I got other things that are of value. So these indifferent people and these hostile people, all they're doing is saying, this is more valuable than Jesus who died in my place. This is the absolute picture of rebellion. It's opposition. And yes, the hostile people murdered people, but you indifferent people, You're doing the same thing. You're saying Jesus' death is of no value when it is the most valuable thing that has ever been done for us. What an offense we have to the Almighty. My spot is worthless. I value something more than your son. But look at the Father's lavish provisions and his patience and his calling others This is all to show how great the Son is. Indifference to the gospel and opposition to the gospel, they earn their judgment because both of these are attitudes with the same issue of the heart. Now, if it were us, what would we do? We'd be like, fine, no one gets to go to the feast. Kids were eating leftovers for the next six months, right? Isn't that what we would do? We'd be like, fine, none of you are getting in. But that's not the way our our God's heart is, is it? God invites everyone to the feast. There is not a person on earth that is not invited to this feast. And the the problem is, is that there are people that just don't care. Jesus has gone first, then the 12, and then the, the millions upon millions of missionaries going to spread this good news. And see, that that's where we get to the last part of this parable. Starting in verse 8, the king decides that there's something else he can do. So he goes to the uninvited guests. 
Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now, understand this. In, in Jewish culture, not being worthy meant you weren't of the upper class. There was a class structure. And if you're not at the very top, you were really not worthy. Here, this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, or the king, is saying. The king is saying, the ones who are worthy are the ones who respond right. It has nothing to do with what you've done, what you've accomplished, the degrees you have, how many Bible verses you've memorized. It also has nothing to do with whether you've been a bad person in your past or a goodish person. Instead, it has everything to do with what is your response to what he does. What qualifies us as worthy or not is how we respond, not character, not past, not present, not knowledge, not position, but response. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good, bad, and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When I first read this, when I saw both bad and good, my mind went right to the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, if at this point, in the, just a few short months, if you were going to say who's the baddest person, the person that would never become a Christian, whose name on the yearbook is least likely to be a Christian, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. And yet, he becomes the most influential Christian of his time. See, here's the thing. Your past does not determine whether you get into the feast, nor does your past disqualify you from getting into the feast. Like, honestly, we could probably just say that over and over and over again until it finally gets into our heads, and that would be an amazing sermon. Your past does not get you in the door, and your past does not keep you out. That's the brilliance of the gospel. That's why it's good news. You can say, but Pastor John, you don't know my past. You're right, but guess what? It's forgiven in Christ. Oh, but Pastor John, you know, I've been in church my whole life. Yes, but you know what? You can go to every single church event from the moment you're born and you have not done enough to get in to heaven, to the feast. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. This is what the Lord wants, though. He wants a full wedding hall. He wants the end of verse 10. And so this should bring us to a point of humility. We should be going, how did I get in? I feel like I don't belong here. And that's absolutely right, because you don't. We get into the wedding feast because of the sun, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are. We get in because of Christ. He didn't send his missionaries out because God needs us. Instead, he wanted to share his love with each and every person. So we are not saved on what we do. We're saved by grace alone. And notice this father, he's honoring his son. He wants his son's name to be made great. When we are a part of the feast crew and we are going, wouldn't you tell everybody? We were not invited, but now we're invited. We're on our way to the feast. You can come too. That's what the missions work is. It's just saying, there's a feast. I don't deserve to get there, and I know you don't deserve to get there, but we can go. 
I mean, imagine that. A millionaire calls you up and says, hey, I'm, I'm throwing this humongous feast. There's going to be all this amazing stuff, and I'm going to give away cars, and you're going to get boats, and I'm going to give away some islands. You just come, and it's going to be this fun time, and you can invite anybody you want. You're like, hmm, well, I'm going to keep this to myself. Oh, man, isn't that terrible to think of? Wouldn't you want to invite? I, that, that's, that's the way we're supposed to take it. All right. So we've done the first 10 verses, now we get to the difficult part. But Pastor John, I thought we already did the difficult part. Well, just here we go, because this next part is even more difficult, but I think we can get it. So now we get to probably the weirdest part of this parable, the presumptuous guest. The third response is presumption. Look at verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend... How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So the word presumption means to think you know better. It's brazen, right? It's like I am going to do it the way I want to do it. So we have some questions right off the bat. First of all, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Now, we need to remember in parables, Jesus tells us all that we need to know. We don't need to try to find other things out there. So who is this guy? He could have been an original invitee, one of the, the high-up people, and he chose not to get dressed because he owned wedding garments. Could be that. Could be from the second group, the group that's invited second, and it looks like everybody got wedding garments and they chose not to take it. We don't know. Because I think what Jesus is doing here is he's being vague on purpose. He's saying it doesn't matter which one it is. If you're somebody of the, of the highest class and you come and think that you can go to the feast on your own, you're wrong. If you're of this group, the second group that's invited in, and you get brought in and you're like, oh, I'm at the feast, but I'm going to do it on my own, you're in the wrong. The king is the one who decides what you wear. Notice the king comes into the feast. Isn't that good news that the king comes to the feast? We get to be in the presence of God for eternity. That's just amazing to me to even think about. So let's get our visual on this, okay? So maybe some of you have been to those restaurants where you show up without a jacket and they go, here's a spare, you have to wear that. Could be something like that. Or if you imagine it like this, you come into this huge hall and everybody's wearing tuxedos and the ladies have on exquisite, beautiful ball gowns. And as you look out, you're like, look at how good looking, how awesome this is. And then you look at the table right in front of you. And there's a man with no shirt on, when he definitely should have one on, a pair of swim trunks, and flip-flops. And it's worse, flip-flops with socks. <laughs> Do you think he might stick out a little bit? And this is what is being shown to us here, that there's this feast and everybody's dressed appropriately, but there's this one person and the king looks at him and goes, what are you doing here? You've been invited, you're attending, but you're not welcome the way you're dressed. So most of the people probably from the, the highways and byways, they're out doing their everyday thing. Most likely they didn't have any wedding garments. So probably what's being implied here is the king has given it to them. This was not uncommon. We find some history that says that. But what we do see is that this man, he refuses the king's wedding garments. Jesus points this out, and he, he starts verse 12 with the word friend. The next time this word appears is in 
Matthew 26, verse 50, when Judas walks up and he says, friend, what are you doing here? See, Jesus is calling out immediately in this parable. He's calling out, you're not my friend. You didn't do what I said. You're not my friend. You can't pretend to be my friend. You either are or you aren't. This feast has been spread. It's been prepared. And it's for all my friends. But you're not my friend because you have not repented. You still think that you are in charge. You still think that you are running this place. This is what we call a false professor of faith. This is someone who pretends, maybe even says all the right things, but never lets it get to the heart. We need to remember that in, in, in heaven, there will be no pretenders. There will not be that villain who is hiding with a little cloak over his head and he sneaks on to the ship to get away from the, the other villain who's now getting beaten. Right? It's not the, the one who sneaks out and gets away at the end of the movie and you're like, oh, he got away. There will be no people that do not belong in heaven in heaven. There will be none of us who will sneak in. We either ride in with Christ or we don't get in. And if you think about it, we've seen these three responses. Indifference. They hear, I don't care. Hostility. They hear, and you'll shut up about that. And then we've got this presumptive. I'll get in on my own merits. See, how ridiculous is this? The guy in the swim trunks and the flip-flops with socks, he has walked in, he sees the feast, and he still goes, yep, I'm just going to do this my way. If that's not the saddest story ever, I don't know what is. To sit and hear week after week descriptions of how great the gospel is, to hear how great the feast is that's coming, and to go, nah, I'll do it my own way. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Let's not be a part of that tragedy. Now, I don't know if this man caught it or not, but it says he was speechless. This is a Greek word that doesn't mean you're quiet waiting to talk or that you have a secret that you don't want to tell. It means literally no words to come out of your mouth. There are no words. Why? Maybe what he's done is so bold-faced and in the face of the king, he can't stand it. Maybe it's so audacious or maybe it's the fact that the king has come down to speak to this commoner and is calling him out for something that he should have known. He can't say, I didn't know. I, I didn't know anybody was dressing up for this party. <laughs> He's surrounded by tuxedos and ball gowns. This, this gown that he's wearing, the Bible doesn't say what it is, but it's clear it's a heart issue here. His heart is not right towards the king. He's decided he's going to do it himself, his own way. And the reaction by the king tells us the heart is the issue. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. It's a place that's a name for hell. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This man represents those who believe they will enter the kingdom of heaven without meeting God's standards. You can say, well, but wait, I'm going to meet God's standards. I'm going to follow all the rules. That's not the standard. The standard is follow all the rules perfectly and you're not going to hit it. There is one who followed the rules perfectly and you're either with him and riding on his coattails to heaven or you're not. Notice the two judgments we see here. First one was the city was destroyed and now the person is destroyed in hell. 
How is this not an overreaction? Again, this king is really intense about this. But you need to understand the presumption, the indifference, and the hostility are all rebellion against the true king. Spurgeon writes, the guests were bidden to come to the wedding to show their respect. The man came and said, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to wear my own outfit. This is an act of rebellion. He is in opposition to the king. He's declared his disloyalty and his contempt. See, Isaiah 61.10 and elsewhere in the Bible talks about garments. Listen to this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered with me a robe with me, me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This righteousness is Christ's righteousness that leads to our righteousness. Righteousness is a big word. It means right standing with God. So Christ is right with God because he's perfect and spotless and he's God. And we are right with God because we're in Christ and then we react correctly. We try to be as righteous as possible, not to earn God's favor, but to thank him for what he's already done. And so the point here of this entire last section is, are you properly dressed? I'm not expecting you all to be wearing ball gowns and tuxedos next week or suits and ties, but are you properly dressed for the wedding feast of the Lamb? What makes you think you can enter the feast? Is it your righteousness? You'll never get in. If it's his righteousness, you've got the winning ticket. You're in. We are to have a distinguishing mark of grace. We should think about it as we, we have a way of dressing that is different than the everyday life. And we as Christians are called to be outside of this world, how we look and how we act. Spurgeon also writes, if you are just the same as those who you lived, as those you lived with in former days, if you've undergone no change and are like the rest of men, you have no distinguishing marks which sets forth your right to be a part of God's church. Your religion must not require a microscope to perceive it, nor should it be so indistinct that few can discover any meaning in it. The king is near. His feast is at the ready. Do we have the clothes to put on? We need to ask ourselves this over and over again. Do, 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 am, am I a part of the king's crew? Am I a part of those who've been invited? Remember the final line of this, of this is, many are called, but few are chosen. Are we going to be like that man who sits at the chair and presents himself willfully as a rebel at the feast of mercy? This feast, which is God saying, I'm not going to judge you for your sins. Christ paid it all. You're going to sit there and say, but not mine. I earned it. Not mine. I did all of the things I was supposed to do. Because the main point, verse 14, for many are called. And I would even say, the Bible says, not just many, everybody's called. But few are chosen. Many accept the invite to the party but few actually go in. So I think the best way to understand this verse as we wrap up is looking at Israel. Israel was a chosen people. 
They were, they were called out of the nations. That's the words used by Abraham, right? That, that Abraham was called forth from the nations. And now this is my group of people. Now this wasn't an exclusive group, right? In the Old Testament, it does have ways for people that are on the outside, Gentiles, to come be a part. But this was his group. These were his people. And yet the people forgot that. And they thought, just because I'm Israel, just because I'm born of the line of Israel, I'm in. I don't got to worry about committing my heart to God. I don't got to worry about my actions. I don't got to worry about where my heart's going. Instead, I'm in. I'm Israel. It's no big deal. And then the prophets come and the prophets say, but this is a big deal. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. And Israel, countless times, is judged, and the Israelites, most of them are wiped out with a little remnant of those whose hearts are right with God. See, this is the picture for us today. We're not Israel. I'm not saying we're taking their place. But understand, there is everybody is called. Every single person on earth is called. What are you going to do in response to that? It wasn't enough for Israel to be Israel. It's not enough for you to make a declaration and say you're a Christian, but not have it change your heart, not have it touch your heart. Because one is worthy when one responds to Christ correctly. And our response to Christ is what we need to do. He welcomes all in, but not all will go to the feast. Only those who respond to him correctly. If you need help with this, if you have questions about this, find one of our elders. Come talk to me. Don't let this fester. If you're going, ah, I, just, I just don't know. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm indifferent. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm hostile. Maybe, you know what? I'm, I think I'm presumptuous. I think I know the best way. Let us help you with that. The gospel's good news. We can't wait to share it with you. So let us know. You fill out a connection card. Go online. Find one of us after the service. We want everyone here to be a part of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true. And your word tells us, Lord, that if we surrender to you, you become the rightful king of our hearts like you already are. And Lord, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation but there is forgiveness and there is love. So Lord, I pray that we would surrender. I pray that for those of us who've made commitments in the past and have, and have wandered away, that we would surrender trying to run our lives the way we are. Lord, for those of us who are indifferent, I pray that we would see that this is the best story ever and it's the true story. And so Lord, I pray that we would surrender. Lord, if we're here today and we have hostility towards some part of your good news or, or some part of your word where we say, Lord, I know better than that. That shouldn't be said or that's not the way I do it. I pray that we would surrender and say, Lord, show me how I need to not be hostile, how I need to not be against your word. Lord, each and every one of us need more of you. And if we're here today, Lord, and we, we don't have any of those problems, but Lord, we're caught in the day-to-day, -day, and we're, we're caught in the fact that we are in Oregon in the middle of winter, and we're depressed, and we're, we're sad, help us to long for the wedding feast. 
not only, Lord, will our, will our shoddy clothes be taken away and garments given to us of your son's righteousness, but we get to feast with the king. So, Lord, I pray that we would be excited for that. Lord, thank you for the feast that will go on forever. We praise you, Lord. In your name, amen.